Welcome to the Food Issues Podcast. I'm your host, Julie Revelant, and I'm a journalist, healthcare copywriter, and a mom of two. In every episode, we talk about the challenges around feeding kids and give you practical and realistic solutions that will inspire and empower you to raise healthy eaters. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the podcast. So we all know that breast is best, but that doesn't always mean it's easy. And all too often, moms just aren't getting the right information and support. I think I've told this story before, but when I was pregnant with my first child, I read a book about breastfeeding before I gave birth, which is a good first step. But of course, the only way to learn how to breastfeed is to actually breastfeed. And so after I gave birth, which by the way, was 41 hours after my water broke, I held my daughter, brought her to my breast and asked the nurse, is this right? And she said, I thought you read a book. Not exactly the supportive care I was looking for. And unfortunately, many moms have the same types of stories. There's a real lack of support and it just starts immediately postpartum. Mothers are just expected to sort of get on with it. And there's no pause in her life to say, hey, I just made another human being. That's Dr. Kathleen Kendall Tackett, a health psychologist, international board certified lactation consultant, and the owner and editor-in-chief of Proclaris Press. Kathleen and I talk about how to overcome the most common breastfeeding challenges and the best place to turn for help, why our breasts actually have a storage capacity, and how complex trauma and mental health issues can come into play for some women and what they need to know. There's so much great information in this episode, and I know you're going to love this interview with Dr. Kathleen Kendall Tackett. Well, Kathleen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about your story. You know, how did you become interested and and involved in this research around breastfeeding and trauma and mental health? Well, I was already doing trauma and mental health research for a very long time. Um, I started as a sexual assault researcher back in, in the 80s. Uh, and so that that's something that, you know, I've done pretty much throughout my career. Uh, the depression stuff came later. And then I started the breastfeeding work just as a volunteer because I enjoyed, you know, working with new mothers. You know, I started working kind of in a mother-to-mother support capacity and enjoyed that. And then pretty soon people started asking me to bring my research into the breastfeeding field. So that's how it ended up kind of uh, meshing. People said, you know, come and talk to us about depression or come and talk to us about child sexual abuse, you know? And so that uh, that's how I kind of ended up meshing lactation and mental health. Great. Yeah. And how do you work with people today? Oh, in a variety of capacities, actually. Um, probably my biggest area is I actually train professionals. Um, And so that's kind of, it's more sort of an indirect work, but I actually also speak directly uh, to mothers either, you know, on online or I talk to them in person, you know, on the phone or in person. And so, you know, a lot of times moms seek me out specifically if they've got a question around some of these issues that I talk about. What would you say is, is the biggest challenge for moms, for breastfeeding moms today? Oh, I think there's a variety of challenges. I think probably the biggest one is we undermine them right from the start in the hospital, even during their birth. You know, we do things that tell, we tell them that it has no effect, but we actually do know that it does. Uh, You know, a lot of the birth interventions now, again, a lot of the birth interventions you may still have to do, they may be medically necessary, but a lot of times we pretend like they don't have any effect. 
And then moms are like struggling and they're wondering what the heck is going on. And there's nobody there to sort of help them except, you know, formula companies come along at that point and say, well, we'll help Mm -hmm. (laughs) here. Here's a nice supplementation, you know, but the other thing is, you know, there's a real lack of support uh, and it just starts kind of immediately postpartum, you know, that mothers are just expected to sort of get on with it. And there's no sort of even pause in her life to say, Hey, I just made another human being. You know, that's kind of a big deal. <laughs> yeah. You know, and so they, you know, moms think, oh, yeah, they got to get back to work. They got to do all this stuff. Or, otherwise, they're not being productive. And, you know, so a lot of these kind of ideas sort of prey on their mind. And then, you know, if they're tired, the first thing people suggest is, oh, here, let's give you a supplement. You know, and what research studies actually very clearly show is when you start supplementing, the mothers are actually more tired, not less. Wow. You know, Why yeah. is that? Uh, because it impacts their sleep. You know, one of the things that we've really found, and we've seen this very clearly in several big studies, is that the the group of mothers that gets the most sleep, and this is this surprised me, it probably surprised you, is exclusively breastfeeding mothers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because you think, oh, well, how could that how could that possibly be? In fact, I actually was so convinced that that was not true. I actually wrote it. It's in an article that I wrote. You know, because I was trying to speculate, how is it that these mothers seem to be protected from depression, but we know they're getting terrible sleep? Well, it seems like breastfeeding changes the nature of sleep. So for one thing, mothers get back to sleep more quickly. So even though they're feeding more often and they're waking more often, they're getting more total sleep time. And then that's reflected in things like how they feel about their health, what they report as their daily energy level. Uh, you know, a number of other measures of well-being, including things like their anxiety and depression. But as soon as you start adding supplementation into that, the mothers actually get less sleep. They report more fatigue. It takes them longer to go to sleep. I mean, there's just this whole litany. Now, again, if it's one periodic bottle, is that going to have an effect? Honestly, probably not. I think it really kind of has to do with how regular that is. The thing that's ironic is that, you know, the very first thing that people suggest is the thing that's really going to undermine the bit that actually protects mother's mental health, you know? And so again, like I said, oftentimes, you know, that's just an example of some very kind of unhelpful advice, you know, that mothers are given. And it's like, you know, I I just find it, it drives me absolutely insane, you know, and actually Jack Newman just wrote about this too. It's like, oftentimes we have clinicians who think they're supporting breastfeeding by telling mothers when they're in pain, oh, just keep doing what you're doing. It's like, that's crazy advice. You know, it's like we act like, you know, pain is a normal part of breastfeeding. Now, it is a common part. I mean, it means it happens to a lot of people, but that's because, you know, a lot of clinicians are not really trained to deal with it. Because if a mother tells you she's in pain, you need to figure out why. You know, it's kind of like in any other part of your life, Pain signals something's wrong, you know, but somehow we, we think, oh, yeah, this is just a normal part of breastfeeding. You just have to tough your way through it for six weeks, you know. Well, I mean, there's an awful lot of mothers, and actually I can't say I blame them, who stop because of that. Probably the biggest reason, you know, that and, you know, perceived low milk supply. Yes. Yeah, now, I think it's a great point. Yeah. So, you know, unfortunately, yeah, you get a lot of, um, you know, really poor advice. I think actually... It would help so much if every clinician who sees mothers could evaluate two things. 
They could evaluate whether the latch is effective, which means, you know, it's comfortable and the baby can actually, you know, remove milk from the breast, you know, and that the baby is actually drinking at the breast. You know, if they, if they knew those two things and if they could evaluate those two things, I really think it would actually have a huge impact on how many mothers are able to successfully breastfeed. But because many can't, you know, then, then you start getting into problems. And then you hear about these cases that are tragedies, you know, where mothers are going and asking for help and asking for help, you know, and then their baby gets really severe dehydration and they end up in the hospital. And in some cases they die. I mean, it's really that serious, you know, and it's like, I think actually if, if clinicians knew those two things, I think that that would help a lot instead of just saying, oh, just keep doing what you're doing. You know, that's absurd. That's neglectful. They really actually do need to evaluate. If a mother has a concern, we need to evaluate it. Yeah. And who should moms see? Because I think you have, you raise a good point in that not all clinicians can address these issues. I think actually you're probably going to have your, your best luck with, you know, somebody who's a lactation consultant. But I want to actually say some of the people that I know who have been the most skilled are people who are like, you know, longtime mother to mother support people. You know, they don't have any formal education in this. You know, they they don't have a lot of fancy credentials, but they've worked with moms for a long time and they're good at it. You know, so I would say you may have to ask a couple of people. It, you know, it, you may have to kind of like ask around, you know, if you're in a if you're in any kind of mother group, ask who's good, you know, and get an opinion. And, you know, part of it is just like, does this person sort of mesh with your personality? You know, you want to make sure they have the skills they need, but also too, you know, how do you feel working with them? You know, do you walk away feeling empowered and that you feel like you can do it? Or do you feel like, you know, oh, I'm just going to need this expert here all the time. I just can't do this. But yeah, lactation consultants, I think, are more likely to have the skill set, you know, but I don't want to kind of rule out other people because they may know it too, you know, but I think that, you know, oftentimes the first place we turn is like pediatricians for mothers in the U.S. is we turn to pediatricians and pediatricians are in a tough position, honestly. And I can tell you this as somebody who's trained a lot of pediatric residents, they get no training on this, none. And yet they're expected to know. So a lot of times they're winging it or they're talking about it based on their own personal experiences, you know, and there was a rather disturbing uh, study that came out and it showed that, you know, a majority of pediatricians don't actually in their hearts believe that breastfeeding works. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And the, the, the percentage has actually gone down over 10 years and yet they're saying all the right things. Oh yeah. Breast is best. Oh yeah. Baby friendly hospitals, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but they don't actually think it works. So what's that going to communicate to mothers? You know, mothers, especially in the immediate postpartum because of oxytocin are very tuned into social cues. It's like, it's almost like a superpower. And so they're really going to discern, you know, even if nothing is ever said, they're going to discern that this doctor doesn't think I can do this, you know, and that actually plants a powerful sort of negative seed. So what you really want to be with is somebody who actually, you know, not only has the skills, but who actually believes that you can do it. I think that that's just so important. Who believes that this works? I mean, not being, you know, unsensible. You know, it's like you don't want to ignore warning signs because there are times, you know, when you actually do need some help. But I think actually the idea is you want to sort of, as Tina Smiley used to say, ooze confidence that breastfeeding is going to work. Because I think if you don't have that, 
then it's really hard for moms to persevere because they, you know, they get that message and they think, oh, I'm not going to be able to do this. That is so true. And I think it's a good lesson as your kids get older, you want a care team on your side who is supportive of, of, of what, of the direction you want to go in. And so what should moms know about the effects of trauma? So we're talking about maybe, you know, PTSD, complex trauma on pregnancy, childbirth, postpartum health, and breastfeeding. Well, you know, it really varies. You know, this is the thing that I have learned, you know, from talking to mothers over the years is, you know, especially breastfeeding actually can be, you know, something that mothers just can't tolerate. Or they tolerate it because they think it's important, but they don't particularly like it. Or they find it very healing. You know, and so, so much of it depends. There's just a lot of individual variation there. You know, what I've kind of learned is, okay, we kind of go with what, where the mother is and we work from there. You know, okay, what can you, what can you tolerate? And, you know, let's work from there. But I think we, we do mothers a disservice if we automatically assume they're not going to want to breastfeed. And I think that that's actually kind of unfortunate, you know, when that happens, you know, because I've heard that happening, you know, it's like uh, mothers have told me, yeah, that, cl- you know, the clinicians will say, oh, you know, you don't have to worry about this. You have a history of sexual abuse, but they really wanted to, they wanted to breastfeed, you know, and in fact, in our study, we actually had 994 women who identified as having been sexually assaulted. And when we compared them to the rest of the sample on rates of exclusive breastfeeding, it was identical. You know, now this is not to say that it was always, you know, easy or problem free, but the rate was identical. And I think one of the things that we've seen kind of in several different studies is we really need to look closely at, you know, um, how we talk about this with mothers, because I think sometimes people are pretty negative and they'll say, oh, well, you know, it's going to be hard. I read one paper. It was saying, well, you know, if they have a history of trauma, they're going to have less oxytocin, you know, coming into postpartum. And so it's going to be harder for them. Okay, well, let's increase the oxytocin. They're like, oh, you can do that? Yeah. (laughs) You know, one of the things that does that is positive social interaction. So by being a support person, you can sit there and make eye contact with the mother, which increases oxytocin, and have a good conversation and be encouraging. That all increases oxytocin. So people act like these things are somehow like, like the trauma causes these sort of immutable things. It doesn't. And actually, I think one of the things that we a lot of times forget is for trauma survivors, breastfeeding especially has some incredible benefit. You know, for one thing, it reduces the risk of intergenerational transmission of trauma. I mean, that's just huge. That's something so many mothers were, and it really significantly lowers it. I mean, 3.8 times for neglect and 2.6 times for physical abuse. Wow. You know, and when we looked at it with our sexual assault survivors, I mean, especially anger and irritability, it basically flattened it out so that those mothers, the mothers with a trauma history didn't look any different than the mothers who did not have that. You know, it was just incredible because basically breastfeeding, remember, acts as a powerful physiological mechanism that actually turns off, dials down the trauma response. You know, because what happens is you get this very hyperactive you know, sort of uh, stress response, which includes the immune system response. You get this hyperactive response to stress, you know, in the wake of trauma. If you've experienced trauma, then you get this response that becomes very hyperactive. It's one of the things that actually impacts health. But breastfeeding 
counters that response and actually turns it down. It's so fascinating, right? The way that nature works. And so for someone who is pregnant or thinking about becoming pregnant, do you recommend that they talk to a therapist if if they've experienced trauma to kind of like tease out these issues before they have their babies? Well, honestly, it's probably not a bad idea. And the other thing I would encourage is is a great resource called Survivor Moms. So I would say, you know, definitely Google that because they've got a couple of great like uh, program manuals, one for pregnancy and one for postpartum. That really, I think is really good. It's probably some of the best materials I've seen. You know, if, if they're comfortable with it, it's probably not a bad idea to just maybe talk through some of these issues. You know, what some of the moms have told me is they said, you know, they'd kind of been in therapy at different points of their life. And so when they knew that they were coming up on a stressful time, they would actually get that support. They would go back to therapy for a brief amount of time to just have that support. But they weren't in it like constantly, you know, they were kind of in and out over the years. And so, again, I said, just having sometimes that touch base, you know, to say, okay, I'm just kind of want to check in, you know, make sure everything's going okay. um, I think is probably a good idea. And so, you know, aside from breastfeeding alone, what do you think is lacking in the healthcare system and support for moms after they give birth? I think there are so many things lacking. So, you know, <laughs> I would say probably the biggest thing is the lack of what they call continuity of care. You know, it's like we discharge mothers. We say, come back in six weeks or two weeks if you have a C-section. You know, and it's like now the current guidelines are that mothers should be seen within a couple of days, you know, after they leave the hospital. But most aren't. You know, and it's just like it seems like there's so many mothers that just fall through the cracks, you know, and not, you know, coincidentally, that's when breastfeeding rates really melt off, you know, and so it really does speak to that incredible lack of support. And part of it, honestly, too, is, you know, there's the physical lack of support, which we know exists, but there's also sometimes, you know, mothers have internalized this idea in our culture that they need to just get on with it. You know, it's like, I can't tell you the number of mothers who've told me the story about the woman in the field and she gives birth and she puts her baby right on her back and goes back to work. And it's like, they think that's what they should be doing. And it's like, if you look at countries, you know, that actually where that could happen, that's considered a sign of deprivation. That's not the model to uh, try to achieve you know, those cultures a lot of times are much better at recognizing that, you know, new mothers are vulnerable and offers like support to them, you know, in a way that we don't hear. And it's kind of a regular system, you know, like you have the, you know, the the, the quarantine um, that, you know, you see in Latin American cultures or you have like, the, you know, the doing the week or the, you know, that you see um, in like, say, Germany. I mean, there's like all these different cultures that have these things where postpartum is set apart as separate. And yet somehow our mothers have internalized this idea that you got to do it yourself, you know, and that if you ask for help, that it's weak, you know, and if they don't believe that, unfortunately, sometimes other people in their life do. I don't know if you've read this book, but I read um, Mother Hunger and she talks. It's a great book. I recommend it. Um, But it's about attachment and um, that void that many women have from their own mothers. And she talks a lot about um, kind of what happened in utero and, um, and working moms and why there's such a focus on getting back to work. And we are not able to breastfeed our babies and we're not able to bond with them. 
Yeah, I, I could believe that. And it's like, I think, you know, one of the things that we've learned over the last, say, 25 years is the impact of prenatal stressors, you know, on, on babies and this kind of these intergenerational effects. You know, honestly, I probably would have been a little more careful about my stress level, you know, had I realized some of this stuff and kind of this sensitization that can happen for babies. But I do want to say, you know, that if we can get that mother and baby in sync and securely attached, that overcomes a lot of these things, you know, so that actually, and that's something I talk about in my book is like, it's a breastfeeding book, but I, I say, you know, let's keep in mind the bigger picture here, which is the real goal that we're aiming for here is that you are your you and your baby have a secure attachment. Yeah, that's great. So we're going to take a break. And when we get back, we're going to dive a little bit deeper into breastfeeding challenges. Back to school is right around the corner. And although I'm loving this warm weather, I'm also ready for my kids to start a new school year and get back to their normal activities. I know it's going to get hectic and my kids are still going to complain about what's for dinner. But one of the things I do to encourage them to try new foods and eat their veggies is to cook together. When they can make choices and they have a hand in making a meal, they're empowered and more likely to eat healthy. But if cooking isn't your thing, then the Kids Cook Real Food e-course is for you. This course was created by a mom of four and a former teacher, and it's for kids ages two to teen. You'll get more than 30 basic cooking skills, 45 videos, including a ton of bonuses, plus supply and grocery shopping lists and kid-friendly recipes. The course also has a ton of substitutions, so if your kids have food allergies or dietary restrictions, you're covered. My daughters and I have taken the course, and it was so easy to follow along that they made an entire recipe all on their own. More than 18,000 families have taken this course, and the Wall Street Journal named it the number one cooking class for kids. All you have to do to sign up is go to kidscookrealfood.com slash food issues. And because you're a listener, you'll get a free lesson. Again, go to kidscookrealfood.com slash food issues and sign up. This fall, I know you're gearing up with the clothes and back to school supplies, and you're probably looking for new snack ideas. Finding healthy snacks with real food ingredients that are also affordable and safe for school isn't always easy. And that's why I love Thrive Market. Thrive Market is an online membership-based market that makes healthy living easy and affordable. Everything is organic and non-GMO, and members save an average of $32 on every order. My kids are all about the Lara bars and the Go Raw cinnamon snacking seeds. Thrive Market also has essential groceries, safe supplements, non-toxic home products, and clean beauty products, plus ethical meat, sustainable seafood, clean wine, and more. If you join today, you can get 25% off your first order and a free gift. All you have to do is go to thrivemarket.com slash food issues where you can sign up and see my favorite items. And for every paid membership, they give a free membership to a family in need. So sign up today at thrivemarket.com slash food issues. So Kathleen, what are the most common reasons that moms quit breastfeeding? Um, I'd say probably the two big ones are low milk supply or perceived low milk supply and uh, uh, nipple pain. I'd say those are probably the two biggest reasons. Yeah. And so how can women determine if they have a low milk supply or not? Well, I think that, you know, the gold standard, of course, is the baby's weight. Is the baby consistently gaining weight? 
you know, and if the baby is consistently gaining weight and looks healthy and, you know, is, you know, seems responsive and doesn't have pinched up skin, you know, that signs that indicate dehydration and they're regularly stooling and they're regularly peeing, then we know really the mom's got enough supply. You know, I think sometimes we get a lot of false cues that the baby, we think sometimes that we have a low milk supply and it's false information. You know, for example, you know, you may be feeding your baby more often than your friend. And so you might think, well, I have a low milk supply. Well, no, you don't. Maybe you have a smaller storage capacity in your breast. So you have to feed more often during the day. But over 24 hours, your baby's getting exactly the same amount of milk as your friend. It's just in a different pattern. You know, and so it's like if we can kind of understand, you know, that is a kind of just an anatomical difference. You know, we're all different sizes and shapes and, you know, we have different structures in our breast and you can't always tell just by looking, you know, somebody with small breasts could actually have a very large storage capacity that refers to the amount of milk making tissue she has, you know, and it, it's not automatic that somebody with larger breasts will have large storage capacity. So that actually, again, that pattern of feeding, if you feel like you're feeding your baby a lot and your other, your friend isn't, you know, you might think, Oh, I have low milk supply or another one, you know, it's like, you know, you feed your baby at the breast, baby pulls off, seems satisfied. You give them a bottle and they go, you know, suck, 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 and they drink it, you know, and you think, oh, I must have a low supply. No, it's like babies are like us. You know, if food is convenient and easy to get, <laughs> they'll take it. You know, yeah. I always kind of characterize it's, it's Doritos. You know, you don't eat those because you're hungry. <laughs> you know? That's so funny. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's like if, you know, if the baby pulls off the breast and they're satisfied, you know, and again, weight is weight gains on track and everything. You know, they really have had enough, but they'll drink it if you offer it. You know, so again, like I said, if a baby seems unsatisfied, then sometimes we want to maybe sometimes think about some supplementation. But you know, just giving a bottle isn't an indication of your milk supply. You know, and the other one that's kind of a trick is it's like you think you know, and I actually got this advice as a new mother, and you know, and I found out that it wasn't great advice, but she said. Well, just use a pump and pump out your milk and you'll see how much you're making. And then if it's enough. Well, there are mothers who have a full milk supply who can never get used to a pump. You know, not everybody can pump, you know, and also it depends on the quality of your pump. So it's a real false sign. You know, so a mother may actually have a perfectly fine milk supply, but she tries the pump and nothing comes out. She thinks, oh, my gosh, I must not have any milk at all. Well, that's not true. You know, really, the cue is your baby. You know, does your baby seem satisfied? Is your baby gaining weight consistently? You know, does your baby like meet other sort of developmental things? You know, you can actually tell the difference between a baby who is actually sort of malnourished looking and a baby who is, you know, chubby and filled out and, you know, making eye contact and, you know, not crying constantly. You know, crying is something we always need to investigate. Now, again, sometimes babies cry a little more because they're a little more sensitive temperament-wise, you know. But, you know, the first thing we want to look at is we want to make sure that baby's getting enough to eat. But if that baby is sitting there and is satisfied and is gaining weight, you know, the mom's milk supply is on track. And what about nipple pain? Is that always to do with the incorrect latch? You know, that's the first place we always look. You know, but it could be any, any, a number of other things, you know, it could be that there's some kind of anatomical issue within the baby's mouth, you know, like tongue tie is a big one, you know, that can cause a lot of nipple pain and that can cause, you know, faltering weight gain and, you know, a number of other problems. 
Now, there's a couple types of tongue tie. You know, one is actually pretty straightforward, you know, where you just kind of clip right at the front of the tongue. Okay, so that's called, an, you know, an anterior tongue tie. You know, but the one that's a little more controversial is the one that's farther back, and it's a bigger deal. And so that procedure is a little more, is a little more controversial. You know, well, I say a little. It's actually, if you go on Facebook, you'll see it's a lot more controversial. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> People going sort of back and forth about that. But tongue tie is definitely something to look into because, you know, it's pretty common, you know, and so sometimes that, you know, just having that little clip of the anterior tie and it's a pretty easy procedure. You know, a lot of times there's not even any blood, but uh, I, you know, mothers sometimes really can kind of suffer for a long time with that. So it's kind of good to look into that. If you're, you know, if you find that, you know, you've kind of addressed latch issues, the latch seems solid, but the baby somehow can't, you know, stay on or is making clicking sounds, you know, those are kind of indications, you know, and then maybe have somebody take a look at it. Sometimes, you know, babies have different structures of, you know, the roof of their mouth. That's less common, but it does happen. You know, and the other thing to look at is infection. You know, could there be a breast infection someplace? You know, maybe, you know, the mom and the baby have thrush, you know, and they're passing a yeast infection back and forth to each other. You know, Mm -hmm. that could actually be really painful. Or she may have some bacterial infection that's, you know, because she's had cracked nipples and that's never really sort of healed and it's gotten infected, you know? So those are all the things I would look at. I, you know, we start with latch. That's always the first place, but then I would look at the other stuff, but I always, always take it seriously. There's research that shows that moms who have epidurals are less likely to exclusively breastfeed. Um, there are a few studies that show that there's problems. There could be problems down downstream. Yes. Um, and it's not true for every single mother, but you know, it, it does increase the likelihood of that, you know, being a problem. And so I think actually, you know, it's just important to recognize that epidurals can actually cause a delay in, in lactogenesis too. Like when the milk becomes more abundant, that's actually where it seems to be the problem. And so again, it's not to say you never, ever have one, but what I've actually told practitioners is just be alert for this and know that that mom's going to probably need to be seen within a couple of days just to make sure everything's on track. And so if you were to provide a roadmap or a framework for new moms to navigate breastfeeding, postpartum, mental health, all of it, what what would be some good tips? Um, I would say, uh, you know, have somebody. So either a partner or, you know, somebody who's a supporter could be could be your own mother. It could be a friend but somebody who can actually kind of be with you. I think that that's really important. You know, uh, we, we know that partner support is probably the biggest predictor, you know, of breastfeeding success, but for women who don't have partners um, or whose partners aren't kind of being particularly helpful to find somebody else who can step into that role, you know, it could be a postpartum doula too. There's the emotional support part of it. That's really critical. You know, that actually turns out to be the most important part. You know, if the mother feels listened to and heard and, you know, and supported in that way, then she's much more open to the information and advice. But if you don't give that support to her and just give her the information and advice, the breastfeeding rates actually go down. So we want to make sure that, you know, this is a person that is actually supportive and will be helpful. You know, that baby's outside in the world and kind of doesn't know what to do with themselves. But let's get that checked, you know, and have somebody competent, you know. But if somebody just tells you to just, oh, just keep doing what you're doing and they're not listening to you, it's really important to go see somebody else because that person is probably not giving you good advice. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's interesting how when we get pregnant, there's this uh, 
perspective in America that we're not capable, we need intervention. And then the same thing happens, right? With Mm. breastfeeding and Mm. it's just a societal thing that has to change. Yeah, it does. And I think actually, again, like I said, there's this kind of idea that it's, that it's dangerous now that that idea has kind of gotten out there. And I think that's really unfortunate, you know, that we have that um, kind of belief floating around. I think that's what the pediatricians. And so again, like I said, we want to kind of, you know, trust, but verify, you know, we want to just make sure that there's kind of like, okay, everything's going okay, you know, and, and make sure to kind of support moms, especially during that first week or two. You know, just kind of just check in, see, make sure things are kind of on track, you know, but then a lot of times, you know, encouraging the mothers to trust their intuition about things, you know, it's kind of hard in that first couple of weeks because it's all so new, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like, they're not sure, okay, what part of this, you know, can I trust? What part can I trust? You know, but then they become, mothers become then the most knowledgeable person about their babies. You know, and a practitioner who doesn't listen to what her concerns are is really not, in my opinion, a very good practitioner because a lot of times mothers pick up stuff long before the practitioners do. Right. You know, so if they say, I am worried about this, you know, I think it's important to kind of sit and listen. Now it could be everything's okay, you know, and we can encourage, but I think we should evaluate that before we make that statement. Great. Well, Kathleen, this was a great conversation today. So much interesting research and and tips that you have. Where can listeners go to learn more about you and your work? Well, um, you can go to my website, which is KathleenKindleTackett.com. But the other place you can go is you can go to our our publisher site, which is Preclaris Press. But if you go to KKT now, it'll actually have a link there. And actually, I have a new book actually that just came out this week. um, And it's called Breastfeeding Doesn't Need to Suck. And so it is actually written for moms. And we, you know, I tried to really incorporate a lot of this information that we talked about today, especially, you know, the stuff about sleep. And I have, you know, a whole section, three different chapters on social support and what that looks like. You know, so I really tried to kind of think about the mother's mental health through her breastfeeding journey. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me. That was such a great interview with Kathleen, and I hope you walked away with some really great information and advice. Be sure to pick up a copy of her book, Breastfeeding Doesn't Need to Suck, which I've linked to in the show notes. Thank you so much for tuning into the Food Issues Podcast. You can connect with me on julierevelant.com where you can leave me a voicemail or send me a message and let me know about a new topic or guest you'd like to hear from. And be sure to go to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. I'll see you next week.